Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I, I, my name's Chad. Josh, I mean, <laughs> Matt already introduced me. Sorry, Matt. Matt already introduced me, but uh, my church, Sovereign Grace, where I pastor, we, we pray for your church, for you all, um, by name, uh, for your church, for your pastor, um, many Sundays of the year in the morning and, and our Sunday evening service. Um, and so it's a privilege to pray for you. I, I want you to know largely what our heart is when we pray for you. We, hearing Paul from Coloss, Coloss, speaking to the Coloss, church at Colossae, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And so we pray for you all, um, giving thanks to the Lord for you and his work here among you. And so it's my privilege to be here, to partner with you. I, I share what Matt said about our relationship. Our elders share the same affection for you all, and so we're thankful um, to be in gospel partnership together. That said, um, in that, Josh said, can you come um, this summer some point to preach the word to our congregation, one of the Psalms, and while I'm, you know, on sabbatical, and I'm mindful as I open up the psalm to you. Uh, Josh is on a motorcycle somewhere in Colorado right now, right? But I'm not jealous because I get to be here with you in the Word. And so we're going to be in Psalm 16 together if you want to turn there. Psalm 16. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and I'm just going to read the psalm and then I'm going to pray. Hear the word of the Lord, a mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight." The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand our pleasures forevermore. Let me give a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful that you have superintended this, your word, by your spirit for the sake of your church. We pray that the spirit would give us ears to hear what he is saying to the churches. That as we hear this psalm written by David, as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, that was sung by him in the church in the Old Testament, that is sung as well 
by and most preeminently by your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and us with him, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Turn on the lights in our dark minds so we would understand your word, that we would rejoice over it, that we would repent where we need to repent, that we would be built up in our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, by the working of your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I still remember one of my professors during seminary talking about the death of his daughter. She was a school teacher um, who suddenly, um, in her mid-20s, dropped dead in her classroom. And of course, this professor was devastated. He was one of the godliest men I've ever known. He went to be with the Lord not too many years ago. But he told me that he survived that season of life after his daughter died um, by being regularly in the Psalms. I, I I remember so well what he said to me. It was the most painful and difficult time in my life. And yet God seemed nearer to me in the Psalms than he had ever seen to me before. Why is that? Why is it that when we come to suffering, we can come to the Psalms and find God to be so near to us there? I can tell you from my own suffering, and I can tell you from the suffering of members of my congregation with whom I've walked, um, that the Psalms provide comfort and give voice to the stirrings of our hearts and the thoughts of our minds. They capture what's in your soul, if you will, and give voice to your pain and your suffering, your struggles to understand, your sin, your repentance, and your faith. The Psalms give voice to your confidence in God. They give voice to your joy in God and your praise of God. And that is not just because David or Asaph or some other writer of the Psalms was a great poet, though they were great poets. That's because these songs have a way of helping us to internalize theology. And it's not only this, but they have a way of helping us internalize theology we do not yet fully understand. Right? That's what songs often do for us, don't they? We sing a hymn. We begin to internalize theology that we don't even yet understand. How many of you didn't know what it, ever, for years what it meant to raise my Ebenezer? Right? This is... Why are the Psalms so uniquely qualified, if you will, to do that for us? It's preeminently because in the Psalms, by the Spirit, we hear our Lord and Savior himself singing. So what do I mean by that? If you slow down and really listen to the Psalms, you can hear the Lord Jesus singing. You can hear him teaching us to sing his praises. See, scholars throughout the ages have come to a psalm like Psalm 16, and they have asked the question, is this about David? Or is this about Israel? Or is this about the church? Or is this about Jesus? To which I want to answer, yes. Yes, it's the song of David, but not only of David. David was the king of Israel. 
And David was teaching his people, and he was expecting his people to sing. As their king, he was also their representative, and as such, he taught them to sing. But David knew the promises of God, and by the Holy Spirit, David prophesied what his greater son, the eternal king, the Messiah, would sing. Now, how, how can I make that statement so definitively? Because Peter does. So keep your hand in Acts 16 and look at, or excuse me, Psalm 16 and look at Acts 2. Psalm 16 and look at Acts 2. Acts chapter 2, this sermon of Peter at Pentecost. Jesus has died at the cross, risen from the dead, taught his disciples for a number of days, has 40 days to be exact. He ascended to the right hand of the Lord and 10 days later at Pentecost pours out his spirit in fulfillment of the prophecies in Joel and Isaiah and other places, and Peter gets up and begins to preach to the crowds that are assembled there. And when Peter preaches, he quotes from Psalm 16. Now, he doesn't just quote from Psalm 16. He quotes from Joel 2. He quotes from Psalm 110. But I want you to hear his quote from Psalm 16 because he makes Psalm 16 the song of Jesus. Listen to what he says, verse 25 of Acts 2. For David says concerning him, concerning Jesus. In other words, Peter's telling us authoritatively by the Holy Spirit, Peter's telling us that David is speaking in Psalm 16 concerning Jesus. Peter says, or excuse me, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now listen to what Peter goes on to say. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So this can't ultimately be David's psalm. Because David died and was buried. So it can't ultimately be David's psalm. So he goes on to say, look at verse 30, being therefore a prophet, David was a prophet, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did he, his flesh see corruption this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. See, Peter tells us that David knew that he was prophesying by the Holy Spirit as he sang this psalm that it wasn't ultimately the song of David or the song of Israel, but it was ultimately the song of David's greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ. As their king, as their representative, David was singing this song, but David knew that it was pointing beyond himself to his greater son, the eternal king, the Messiah, Jesus. In other words, think of this, by the Holy Spirit, the eternal son of God was teaching David to sing, was telling David what his song would be. Thus, we should read the Psalms as the songs of Jesus. We should read them that way. And in Christ, by the Spirit, 
These are our songs as well. Just as Jesus is the pastor or shepherd of this church, ultimately, he is the chief shepherd. So Jesus is the worship leader in this church. He's the song leader, if you will, in this church. Now, how do I know that? Because Hebrews 11 tells me that. 2.11, sorry. Hebrews 2.11 says this. He, or Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. Who? You. He's not ashamed to call you brothers. Just as a side note, ladies, Jesus is not ashamed to call you brothers. That isn't because he doesn't recognize that you're women. Okay? That's because he's saying you're co-heirs of the grace of life with him and only sons inherit anything. So he calls you brothers too. In other words, he makes you co-heirs as well. He's not afraid to call you brothers, saying, now this is what he says, I will tell of your name. This is Jesus speaking to the Father. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Who's the preacher on Sunday morning ultimately? Jesus. Inasmuch as the pastor gets the word right, Jesus is the one preaching. Inasmuch as it gets it wrong, he is the one preaching. <laughs> Jesus is. In, listen to what it goes on to say. In the midst of the congregation, in the midst of the church, Jesus says, I will sing your praise. Who's the one leading the singing in the church? Jesus is. When you gather to sing... And to hear the word preached on the Lord's day, you gather to hear the Lord Jesus lead you in song and to hear the Lord Jesus preach the word to you. So here's a question I have for you. What better thing do you have going on on the Lord's day than to hear Jesus lead you in song and to hear Jesus preach the word to you? What do you have going on better than that? Jesus is the creator of all things. He's the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the one that, after making purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. And he is the one who, by his spirit, takes instruments like these musicians and this pastor and has them open this word and lead you in song and preaching. And he is the one speaking to you, giving himself to you by his spirit. You've got nothing else going on on Sunday morning better than that not one thing so this is true as we come to psalm 16 as well as we come to the psalm let us hear it first as the song that david sang and that the holy spirit puts in our mouth but then let us hear it preeminently preeminently as the song that jesus sang as David sings and teaches his people to sing, here's what I want to do. I want, to, I want us to hear nine truths that David teaches us to sing about the Lord and his church. So nine truths that David teaches us to sing about the Lord and his church, and really nine truths that Jesus himself is singing about. So let's start with the first one. The Lord is our protector. The Lord is our protector. The one who preserves us, our shelter, our comfort. And when I say our comfort, I mean in the old Latin sense. We think of comfort, we think of like a blanket, like a comforter, and I feel so cozy. But when it says the Holy Spirit's going to come as a comforter, or when you come to a text and we say the Lord is our comfort, it's the old Latin sense of cum forte. Cum meaning with, forte meaning strength. He comes with strength. So if you think about playing the piano and you say, the piano is my forte. It's not my forte, but that's my strength, right? 
Not mine. No musical instrument nor singing are my strength. Quite the opposite. So the Holy Spirit is our strength here. The Lord is our strength, our protector. Look at verse 1. A mictum of David. Now, a mictum is a kind of musical notation, but that little word in all bold where it says a mictum of David is a part of the inspired and errant text of Scripture. We don't exactly know what a mictum is. It's some kind of liturgical or musical notation, but we know it's a part of the text of Scripture. A mictum of David. So it's some sort of song that David's singing. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So what David is saying is the Lord is my shelter in the storm of life and death. He's the one in whom I take refuge. He is my protector. He is the only one to whom I can turn. He is the only one who can weather the storms of life and provide me with safe harbor. Listen, if you don't know that yet yourselves, you will someday hit the point where you have no hope apart from the Lord. It will come for you. He will graciously kindly strip you of everything and you will be left with no answers there will be no promises of better circumstances no sense that this may come out well and he'll be all you have left and you will find that he's more than enough frankly death is coming for us all you know when you're facing death there's no hope of better circumstances in this world is there Death's coming for us all. Every moment, every tick of the clock, death gets a step closer, moves in on us even more. When I was younger, I'm still young enough, but when I was younger, I used to think that death was somewhere in China, right? And now he feels like he's somewhere in Taft, right? <laughs> he's just closing in. An older gentleman in my church came up to me and said, I think he's in a van outside my window peeking in, right? <laughs> Death's coming for us all. What's your hope then? What's your hope in death? What, who's going to preserve your soul? Who's going to provide you shelter? Only the Lord. Only Him. If you know Him. We need to sing that now, don't we? So that our souls learn the lesson well when we need it most. When I am with a family, and I've been with more than one family, who's lost a child, right then, they need to have been singing before that day, the Lord is my refuge, he is my shelter, he is my strength, he is my protector. Because there's nothing I can say to them to tell them something's going to be better in the future. Nothing. We better be protecting that, or, excuse me, we better be practicing that now so we're ready to sing it then. Jesus does that, doesn't he? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Do you hear the trust of our Lord Jesus as he comes to his darkest hour? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. See, he doesn't want to face the suffering of the cross. Jesus is dreading 
the eternal, if you will, suffering of the wrath of God for our sins. Yet he knows what the Father has for him. He knows the Father has set for him a purpose. And he knows the Father will glorify his name in this hour. How so? How will the Father glorify his name in the hour of Jesus' greatest grief, his greatest dread? The Father will glorify his name in that the Father's love for his people and the Father's righteous justice will together be upheld at the cross. Here at the cross, Love and justice meet. They kiss there. And Jesus knows the Father will resurrect him and vindicate his name, and he knows that in our resurrection will be our hope of eternal life and our vindication. Thus Jesus knows that his good and the Father's glory are inextricably linked together. And Jesus knows, beloved, that your good and God's glory are inextricably linked together. So no matter what you face, you, you can sing, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So the Lord is our protector. Second, the Lord is our only good. Our only good. Look at Psalm 16 too. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. It's, it's an interesting way for David to speak here. I say to the Lord, Yahweh, which for the Hebrews, they would not have pronounced those four Hebrew consonants. There aren't any vowels there. There's four Hebrew consonants. They wouldn't have pronounced them. Um, they would have come to those four Hebrew consonants and said Adonai, which means Lord, but Lord as sovereign, but they wouldn't pronounce Yahweh. But he's saying this, I say to the Lord, to this covenant Lord, I say to you, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. It's like David preaching the truth to himself here. It's an interesting way for him to speak. He's reminding himself that the Lord has been, promised to be gracious to him. It's stated in a manner that we're reminded, being reminded as we sing, that we're reminding ourselves the Lord is our only good. The, the King James Version actually captures it quite well. Listen how they say it. O oh my soul, thou hast said to the Lord. You hear him talking to himself? Martin Lloyd-Jones, great 20th century British preacher, maybe the greatest 20th century British preacher, um, makes the comment in his series on spiritual depression, um, makes the comment that people struggling with spiritual depression need to learn to talk to themselves and to stop listening to themselves. Right? You need to stop listening to the internal dialogue and start telling yourself the truth. And what's fascinating here is that's what David's doing. Oh, my soul, thou hast said to the Lord, you are my good. Here in David and all God's people reminding themselves of the gospel he has believed. Please hear me. I, I do not mean you're reminding yourself as the gospel in the sense that it's merely a doctrine to be believed. I mean you're reminding yourself of the gospel that you believe. We are not like the character talkative in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. If you've ever read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, 
Um, there's a character in there named Talkative. If you haven't read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, I encourage you to read it. Um, the Cr Crossway has an edition that's kind of an illustrated, very nice edition that's in a little more modern English that's helpful to read. But Bunyan, Bunyan talks about this character Talkative. And Talkative comes alongside Christian. And, and Talkative is so eloquent when it comes to speaking about doctrine. He just has the most eloquent ability to, to, to teach the truths of God, but he lacks a personal knowledge of that doctrine. Because the problem with talkative is he's a talker. He isn't a knower. He doesn't really believe. See, we don't just abhor sin in principle and rail against wickedness in principle out there. We abhor sin in our own lives and rail against sin and wickedness in our own lives, in here. And we don't just exult in the gospel of grace in principle and speak of that grace of Christ in principle. We exult in the gospel of grace in our own lives and we thank God for his grace in Christ that is ours. As Sinclair Ferguson has said, we don't want to just know the doctrines of grace, we want to know the grace of those doctrines. That speaks of a personal knowing and appropriation of the gospel personally. We don't just sing that Christ has given himself for the world. We sing that Christ has given himself for me. Even me. That I'm his and he's mine. We are daily laying hold of Christ and proclaiming our trust in his grace to us as our Lord, our only good. Jesus taught us to sing this way every day. You know that? He taught that to us. He actually, in this passage in Luke, it's also in Matthew um, chapter 6, it's in Luke chapter 12, where Jesus says, you guys know this, you know, be not anxious, don't be anxious. And then he goes on to talk about how how the Lord provides for the birds of the air, though they don't store up in barns, etc. How the Lord clothes the, lily of the lilies of the field with much splendor, etc. And then he asks, how much more is he going to care for you? And Jesus goes on to say this in the Lucan version of it. Fear not, little flock. For, hear this, because this is being said to you. Fear not, little flock. For it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Believe that? It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In Christ, it is your Father's good pleasure. And He, Jesus, is the King of that kingdom. He is the glorious treasure you ultimately receive. And it's His joy to give Himself to you. Third, the Lord's people or his church are our joy. Look at verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, or another way to translate it is the noble ones, in whom is all my delight. So here's David's view of Israel of those who believe in Israel, really the believing remnant of Israel, he's singing of them saying that as for the saints in the land, they're the noble ones, they're the ones in whom is all my delight. 
But Jesus is also singing this, isn't he? Paul sings this kind of thing. Here's a question for you. Do you find your delight and your joy in God's people, in his church? Listen to how Paul says it. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. That's what King David means when he sings of God's people. They are the excellent ones, the noble ones. The world may not see them as noble or excellent, but the Lord sees them that way. Listen, you want to know what words ought never to proceed from the mouth of a pastor or an elder or a deacon or something like that? I have heard it proceed from their mouths often, um, but ought never to proceed from their mouth. This, This phrase, ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. It's just pure, unmitigated arrogance. Perhaps the pastor should be saying, ministry would be great if it weren't for my prideful heart. You see, you want to know what Christ's people should never say? I love Jesus, but I hate his church. Pure arrogance. It's like saying this, I'm God's beloved in Christ, but not them. I know the triune Lord created them, provided for them, redeemed them, that the Father in eternity past chose to save them, that the Son was sent in love to purchase grace for them at the cross by the shedding of his own blood, that the Holy Spirit was sent to indwell them, but they're not good enough for me. I'm too good for them. Try you, Lord. He's not, but I am. Beloved, the church is God's delight. It ought to be your delight as well. Listen to how John tells us what Jesus thinks about his church. You ready? Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, now listen to John's comment. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century British preacher, comments well on this psalm. He says this, Christ delights in his people, his bride, his glory, and joy, and crown. He who knows them best, here's this, he who knows them best says of them, in whom is all my delight. They count themselves to be less than nothing, and yet he makes much of them and sets his heart towards them. You see, when you look at Psalm 16.3, and it says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. You hear Jesus is singing that. He who knows you best, you know something about you. But you don't even know how wicked your heart is, right? 
The heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. Who can know it? That, that means you can't even know your own heart fully. Yet he who does know your own heart, he who knows you best, says of you, in whom is all my delight. Can you hear Jesus singing that over you? And his church? Do you see the rest of the church that way? Do you see the other local churches in town who are preaching the gospel that way? Do you drive by with a critique, or do you drive by and say, Jesus says of them, in whom is all my delight? Fourth, the Lord alone is our God. The Lord alone is our God, Psalm 16:4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. What David is saying is that there are many unbelievers, and he sees them all around, who run after other gods, and that in running after other, other gods, their sorrows will just multiply. And he's not going to participate in the worship of their idols. He won't even name their idols. And what he means by that is not that he won't tell you what the names of their idols are. What he means by that is he's not going to worship their idols. He's not going to uphold their names. He won't trust in their idols to help him. He will trust and praise the Lord alone. The Lord alone is our God. And God's people should join him in praising God alone. We're to be devoted to, set apart to, committed to God's praise. And we need to know what David says here, which is that the idols of this world, the gods and ideologies of this world, will break our hearts. They will multiply our sorrows. You haven't seen that in your own life. You haven't paid attention. Those gods will damn us. They never deliver. It may appear so for a while, but eventually you will find that those ideologies, those gods are deaf and mute and blind and impotent and damning. Thus our hearts are to be devoted to the Lord and to trust him and sing his praises alone. In other words, we join Jesus when he rebukes Satan. Satan offered the whole world to him. And Jesus rebukes him and says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Fifth, the Lord is our provision and our provider. Now I want you to hear that because... And bringing those two words together, you've heard of the doctrine of God's providence. Notice the short part of that short word in there, the root word in providence is the word provide. When we say God is providentially controlling all events, that he's at work in everything, that so not even a hair from your head will fall out without it being your father's good pleasure from the hair from your head to fall out, to which some of you might say, why was it my father's good pleasure for so much of it to fall out? But well, well, we know all that that means is when we say providence, is God is providing for every detail of your life. But when we say he's our provider, we want to understand what he is preeminently providing us is himself. So he is himself our provision and our provider. Look at Psalm 16, 5-6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Listen to how Matthew Henry puts this in different language. Let me have the love and favor of God 
and be acceptable to him. Let me have the comfort of communion with God and satisfaction in the communications of his graces and comforts. Let me have an interest in his promises and a title by promise to everlasting life and happiness in the future state. And I have enough. I need no more. I desire no more to complete my joy. See, the Lord is our inheritance. He is our provision, yet the Lord is also our provider. But the greatest thing he provides us with is himself. So you guys know that there are prosperity preachers out there who will tell you if you have sincere enough faith, if you have strong enough faith, if you have great enough faith, then you can um, deliver for yourself, if you will, earthly treasures. When those prosperity preachers do that, they demonstrate their vapid and vain theology. They show forth their corrupt, empty, and idolatrous minds. They are clamoring after the things of this world. They are, like C.S. Lewis says, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slums because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of the holiday at the sea. See, they have no sense that God is their great treasure. David is singing with full knowledge, to quote Matthew Henry again, that God himself is the inheritance of the saints, whose everlasting bliss is to enjoy him. We must take that for our inheritance, our home, our rest, our lasting, everlasting good, and look upon this world to be no more ours than the country through which our road lies when we are on a journey. See, it is because the Lord is his reward, his provision, that Jesus goes on to exchange cups with us. Have you guys ever paid attention to the exchange of cups in Matthew 26? In Matthew 26, what do I mean by that? In Matthew 26, we read of um, the Lord's Supper, where the Lord, um, at Passover, on the evening before his death, the evening of his betrayal, he takes a cup. You guys are familiar with this? Listen to what it says in Matthew 26. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He is handing them the cup the Lord has provided for them, The cup he will not drink again until he drinks it again with them in the Father's kingdom. But what is the cup he's exchanging it for? Because he's handing us the cup of forgiveness of sins. The cup of the new covenant in his blood. And what's he exchanging it for? If you continue down in Matthew 26, he comes to say this. It comes to say this. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father... If possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Do you hear the exchange of cups? He hands you the cup of the forgiveness of sins, and he takes to himself the cup of God's wrath for sin. And he drinks it to the dregs. He drank the cup of God's wrath that I should be drinking from. Why? So that you and I could drink the cup of the new covenant in his blood, the cup of forgiveness of sins, the cup of everlasting blessedness, so that we could sing with him, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. 
Six, the Lord is our wisdom. Look at Psalm 16, 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. See, the Lord is our wisdom. What David's getting at here is that the Lord's word is his wisdom. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And when he uses the word law there, he's referencing the whole of the Torah, the, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. His delight is in the law of the Lord, in the word of God. That's where his delight is. Right? He is like a tree planted by streams of water whose leaf does not wither. See, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. See, what David's getting at is that he learns the word of God, he thinks of it, he dwells on it while he's laying in bed at night, while he's walking around during the day. He says it this way in Psalm 119, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. He knows that folks will attempt to offer him better wisdom. He knows that his own heart will search for other answers, but there are none. There's just the futile explanations of worldly men who are multiplying sorrows to themselves. We follow our Lord and Savior, though, who said, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. See, friends, Christ is the wisdom of God. Thus, we must sing God is our guide, our wisdom, the one whom we trust, the one who directs our steps. Seventh, the Lord is our stable foundation. Look at Psalm 16.8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. See, the tremors that shake my life the storms that beat against me cannot ultimately shake me if my stable foundation is the Lord. Jesus says a very similar thing to this, doesn't he, in Matthew chapter 7, when he says that the wise man builds his house on the rock. No matter what comes, if God is my rock, if God is my stable foundation, then nothing can shake me in a way that I am ultimately destroyed. I may be like Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, where I can say that, I despaired of even life itself, yet God delivered me. Like Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, when he says, I was struck down. The idea is to be thrown to the ground on your back, lying flat. He says, I was struck down, but I was not destroyed. Why? Because God is my rock. I may not understand what God is doing, but I know God is the one who is at work. And I know that it is my Father's good pleasure to give me the kingdom. So he's at work for my good. I know that. Eight, the Lord is our resurrection and life. The Lord is our resurrection and life. Look at verses 9 and 10. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that's to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. See, here's the point. Even at death, even at the grave, even at the darkest hour, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Right? He will not abandon us. He will not leave us to the enemy of death. He'll resurrect us and give us eternal life. So we can continue singing with David, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The Lord Jesus is the good shepherd. He has also said of himself, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And Jesus asks a question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you know him? Death awaits you if you don't know him. But if you know him, what awaits you is eternal life. Do you believe this? Ninth, the Lord is our eternal joy. The Lord is our eternal joy. Look at verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Who goes to his right hand? We will be with the Lord where we will know fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Jesus sang this at his death, which is why it is in his most difficult moment of life, as he died on the cross, he could say with unfettered joy, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See, Peter tells us in Acts 2 that Jesus was singing. You guys know that? Maybe in the Garden of Gethsemane, maybe at the cross, singing, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Listen, as those who trust in Jesus, we also know that his death is our death. And his resurrection is our resurrection. So that when our eyes close in death, they open to see joy and glory forevermore. That's why Jesus prays on his last night. Listen to what he prays for you. Sometimes I think we come to the high priestly prayer in John 17, and we miss an important note. First, he starts praying for his disciples, the 12. The 11 at this point, as Judas is about to betray him. But then he turns And he says, Lord, I don't pray just for them. Or Father, I don't pray just for them. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is their word, folks. The foundation of the apostles and prophets. You are those who believe in him through their word. This means that Jesus in the garden is praying for you. Jesus doesn't just have some nebulous plan in mind. He has you in mind. He isn't just paying for some category of thing called sin. He's paying for your sins. And the night of his betrayal, he's praying for you. And what's he praying for you? Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. 
The father's, the father's hearing that, son, that prayer from his son for you. And you know how the father feels about the prayers of the son? You know what the answer is to the prayers of his son? Yes and amen. All the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. The son died on the cross for you. The son rose from the dead for you. The son ascended to the right hand of the Father where he ever rules and reigns and ever intercedes for you. And so he's the one who sings Psalm 16 ultimately. This is his psalm. This is the psalm of Christ. It's in his mouth at the cross as he contemplates his resurrection, his people, his kingdom, his Father, and his joy. And so what I ask the band to do um, is to sing this psalm. I don't, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the fact that for most of the church's history, uh, we figured the Lord gave us 150 inspired and errant infallible songs. We call the psalms. We should sing them, and so we did. And that fell out of favor for many, many years now. Um, and a lot of the reason that's out of favor is because it's really difficult to sing them, to put them to music in our contemporary music and sing them. I found a version that's good enough, right? And so your musicians have agreed to, to let the Lord Jesus lead us in song through them. And so I know it might be hard for you to sing Psalm 16 with us, and that's okay. Um, but I'm just going to ask you, even, even as you might not pick up on the song right away, to hear the Lord Jesus singing over you and teaching you to sing. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for the kindness that we have been shown and your Son, our Lord Jesus. We're thankful that David sang this psalm, teaching the people of Israel to sing, and that he sang it prophetically, knowing ultimately this is the song of your Son, our Lord Jesus, singing and teaching us to sing. May we, as we come together here in singing the psalm, may we hear our Lord Jesus sing. May we hear his joy in you and in his people, in us, his church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.